out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim. Anyway, hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week, we have a special guest, just for a change. This is going to be with John Robb from The Membranes, who has a new album out, and that is titled, wait for it, What Nature Gives, Nature Takes Away. Check it out. It is the best album they've ever done. And the production is brilliant. And they've also been touring and are still touring. So there is no excuse not to see them. Anyway, this is the interview. And uh, this is the first part. This is after the introductions, which were emotional. Um, and I'd been talking about that, uh, yes, the political time that keeps changing. And um, I suppose, yes, there was that chance that we, we were going to have Brexit in October, November. That didn't quite happen. But anyway, who knows? Who cares? We were just talking about the uh, importance of touring abroad for bands just to make ends meet. And this was John's response. John, take it away. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, it's, um, the idea of reforming the membranes wasn't to... Um, trade on past glories but that was easy for us because our past glories are probably uh, smaller than some band who had loads of hits <laughs> so we weren't trapped by having uh, three really famous songs from 1978 yes uh, we, we had a blank canvas to play with which is a really good thing if you want to do something that's artistic and creative so we could just keep making up the music we wanted so um and then weirdly, we started ending up with music that was better than the music we had in the first place which is not something that often happens to bands we were actually like doing everything in reverse. So usually bands start off really good and they get worse as they go along. And we started off with some good moments, and then some scrappy moments. Then we stopped and we came back yeah. and made two albums that were, that, well, I mean, uh, this is my opinion and I'm in the band that I think they are better than the older stuff. But I mean, anybody else is free to disagree with that, of course. No, yeah. absolutely. But it's interesting you mentioned that because I talked to dear old Richard Strange from the Doctor's Madness and he said we were two years too early for punk, but we were very punk. Completely. But, but um, the good, he said the good thing is, which was why I remembered it, he said, well, that was lucky because if we had been part of that scene and had those couple of hits, we would have just been on some sort of weird circuit and we wouldn't have, I wouldn't, you know, his career wouldn't have been what it is. Um, because of that so obviously sometimes not being having that chart band success straight away means that you I don't know somehow though you might emotionally feel like you missed it at the same time you think actually that was quite lucky if you want to sort of keep a keep a life in the creative industries yeah I was there with uh, Richard Strange it's, it's quite as an outsider it's quite frustrating watching it, isn't it? because basically he with Doctor Madness did all the legwork they went out on the circuit and they kind of played all these small venues. Um, Harbingers or something that was about to change. Then it changed and they weren't allowed in on the change, were they? Yes. <laughs> he was and, over there. And they're great bands, aren't they? You know, yes. One, but music's not fair. You know, it's never been fair or level playing field. So if you go into music colleges these days, they teach all the students how it's as, as a career like curve. You know, you do this, do that, then that'll happen, that'll happen. And you'll have a career, but it doesn't work like that. You... You may have a flurry where it goes really well, but you may have 10 years in the wilderness and then it may come back to you or or, or, or it may be 20 years of being on the outside. It's three for months or something like that when it's years and years of being on the outside, five or six albums, and somebody, everybody gets what you're doing or maybe nobody ever gets what you're doing. You know, yes. or, or somebody else really couple, uh, 
uh, copies what you're doing and gets a better version of it and sells loads of records. It's it's frustrating and it, and people say it's not fair, but it's not meant to be fair. No, <laughs> it's not. You can, you can't make it fair. But it's not like getting being a civil service getting promoted from one job to the other. All you've got is your creativity. That's your wealth, you know. So if you've got the ideas, you put them out there. That's yes. all it is. And, and then, then you do everything you possibly can to get people to listen to it and hopefully buy it to keep you on the road to get to your next idea. And that's a very simple circle of being in an underground band. Yes, this is true. Because the one thing I've noticed listening to your work, the last albums and then your early work, is the production is so much better with the passing of time. Do you, is that a controversial thing to say, by the way? I no, no, because we know what we're doing now. I mean, um, <laughs> in, in the early 80s, the records we want to make in our heads, no one knew how to make those records. Right. There may be a few kind of bigger level producers who were doing like the Division One punk bands. We wouldn't be able to afford those people. We wouldn't even know those people. I was growing up in Blackpool. We knew all the names, of course, but we wouldn't be able to access those people because we were just 16, 17-year-old kids. We had the ideas, but and also the thing, we couldn't really play the ideas. They'd be on this, you know. We were, we, we had like really extravagant ideas, very little uh, skill to pull them off, you know. Uh, you learn that as you go on. And the hardest bit, though, is to learn how to do it, but not lose the fire and the ambition of the ideas. And I think luckily we got in a position where we still had the ideas and they're still very ambitious, but they're still couched in, 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 in weirdly in a punk rock kind of uh, energy. And I, so when I, when I, if, if you really want to ask what we were, I would say a punk rock band. But a lot of people's idea of punk rock is different from my idea of it. Yes. I suppose we were born in those times, you know, and that you know, where uh, musically we was we started in the punk rock times. But that idea, we it was about the energy was very important and a certain level of of aggression or free song is really important in the music. But but we didn't want to play like loads of shouting, so it. It could be, so we, I guess we're more post-punk, that thing, that generation of people grew up with punk and started making music on their own terms, but had no musical knowledge. You didn't know which chord was meant to go after which chord or that things meant to go in a 12-bar. You didn't know any of that stuff. You just played things that sounded good to you. And that's how we still make the music now to this day. You know, it's, it, it doesn't work with any frame, conventional frameworks or rules. It's just by instinct and what feels right. Yes, because I didn't realise that, well, I slightly realised the importance of that producer. And I suppose one of the things I remember watching, because I'm obsessed with those sort of rock documentaries, was that there was a classic album one with Pink Floyd where it was amazing how much the producer actually put the album together and the musicians did their bit. And he said, you know, the producer went and stuck it all together and made that classic album. And then, um, you know, I absolutely love Motorhead and Lemmy. And he was like, they really struggled until they found that producer, that could just harness their sound so Big it nail. isn't just a yeah. noise and and the bands like Husker Do I loved as well because they they you know whoever did that work with them was able to sort of just hold it together without it all just collapsing into a bit of a well that's just a bit of a mess whereas you can with classic Husker Do hear this kind of like my god this is a much so much tension so that must be quite frustrating when you're a musician trying to think oh Christ it's not quite holding it together you know yeah, and it's true the way around. I mean, um, a, a producer can totally ruin a band or a record label imposing the wrong producer on a band. To get them more polished sound, it could totally ruin a band or it could be the making of a band. I mean, so we think about punk, there's always this fear of being popular or selling out, but all the great punk records were, were like pop records in a way. You know, the, the first wave of punk bands were, were fantastic pop bands. They, they'd be on top of the pops. They'd be in the top 20. I mean... No one was aiming to make a record for 100 people. So 
um, groups like the Stranglers, who are now controversial, don't really fit into punk, but if most of us in the audience they were, their records sound fantastic to this day because uh, Martin Russian was a producer and, he's, and he was a great producer. He did Gen X, Buzzcock, Stranglers, and all those records sound timeless to this very day. You know, they all this just sound absolutely great, you know. So, um, yes, it's, so the producer can make a real difference. All the bands may just know exactly what they're doing and be able to record it themselves. So, so um, I mean, that would be Steve Arbini's argument. He sets the mics up in a certain way. The band walks in and records what's in front of him. And he, say, he will say he's a sound engineer and not a producer, but in a sense, arguably, he is a producer because he's setting the parameters of what their sound's going to be. Yes. And also, he comes with a certain kudos, doesn't he, Steve Albini? Because actually... It does, the... but it doesn't work for everybody, though. You know, some people, they should really think about using it because it may not suit their sound. It doesn't mean just because he's worked on your record that your band has got any more value than a band who makes it themselves. You know, he'd be the first person to argue that. But people use him as some kind of trademark. Oh, Steve Albini did my record. But he, anybody who will pay X amount of money and goes to his studio, he'll make their record. He doesn't make records he likes. He make, he's a working engineer. Yes. That's how he looks at it. The best records he makes, actually, ironically, the Shellout Records, his own band, which is uh, a group, in a way, to me, was set up uh, sonically to actually suit the mics and the studios. It's a group that's been created back to front. <laughs> yes, this is true. I know. Though I, he used to sort of, I know they only did one album, but his uh, his other musical combo, Rape Man, was, was quite brilliant, but, you know, a bit tricky too. Fantastic. Well. Uh, yeah, the name, the name was not good, was it? I, 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 when I, when he, I was in his studio when he came up with the name, and I said, that isn't going to work, you know, because I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to be controversial, trying to make a point, but it'll just completely backfire. Because, but at that time, he was very spiky and acidic, whereas now he's completely different. I mean, I did an in-conversation with him six months ago and he's apologising for what he was like in that period of time, you know, <laughs> just saying I was just such a dick, you know, I mean, it's, I mean in, in a way he's, it's more powerful what he does now because he, he makes the music with, in that vision of idea how to make it without winding anybody up, he just makes great art, I mean, you don't the trouble with punk is everybody thought they had to wind people up and that became the art well, <laughs> yes. it's funny, but it became more important well, it's yeah, interesting because what, because what you're saying about punk just being well-crafted, I always thought they did, it was a bit like the Stooges meets the Monkees. I mean, it was just very... When you listen to all that early stuff, it was like, well, this is just classic pop, really. But I know they're a little oh, bit... Oh, yeah, completely. It's all, they're really great. The Sex Pistols are a great pop band. The Clash were a great pop band. <laughs> and the Buzzcocks. I mean, you know... Well, the Buzzcocks are one of the greatest pop bands of all time. Yes. You know, you know that's, that's the Beatles level. Melody, Pete Shelley, or, and, and Diggle as well. Let's, let's not forget Steve Diggle wrote... Uh, really brilliant tunes, fantastic melody writers. You know, in a way, um, punk gave them the space for them to exist, but it also got in the way because all the time, the cranky old BBC at the time would be thinking, oh, they're up to something, aren't they? What are they doing? They're trying to get something over us, these dirty little punks. Yes. Well, <laughs> really, they're just a great pop band. You know, so it, was, it was far simpler than they were thinking. Yes. And when you sort of look back to those early years, because you, you did, you know, because most musical kind of uh, trends there's there's a sort of a four to five year sort of zeitgeist isn't there and then you know people want to move on so you had that sort of post-punk then you had the indie world and then about 87 they got sort of taken out with the dance and then grunge came and then Britpop and and so when you were talking about sort of timing and and sort of you know when you're in a band and you're making it it is it is surprisingly luck if you if you just happen to be there within that short time frame doesn't it because actually 
it's surprising how many bands like, oh, actually, the party's changed. Because I know there was a few bands who came along who were kind of brilliant indie, you know, C86-esque bands. But because, you know, it's 87, the party was almost over. And it's like, then someone like the Sundays came along. And you're thinking, actually, you know, you're just a bit too late. We're kind of bored now. So we're all into the Pixies and, you know, 4AD yeah. and, and the Soup Dragons and Happy Mondays. And again, you know, that, that kind of... Though they did make a great album, it, it was almost a bit like... Yeah, sort of, we've, we've kind of got our feel now. So did you ever feel, because you didn't sort of fit in any kind of little little bubble and you didn't get on the sort of NME, um, the, yeah, the NME cassette either, did you? No, well, I think, I mean, talk about that. I think what I've learned over the years is never be first, never be an innovator. <laughs> yeah, get there about a year later and pretend you were first. So it's C86, about half of that set was bands i mean i know it's for fact they used to come around to my house and um they played with us and did gigs with us and we used to put them up and things and they'd ask how we got our sound and things and we'd help them and they all got on to c86 and the enemy deemed us as being too old to be on it even though it was 18 months before or something <laughs> so yes. it's like we, we kind of we, we couldn't even jump on our own bandwagon we were so useless <laughs> but when you listen ended, to it... even now to this day we've ended up in a genre of one which is uh, artistically is amazing, but uh, business-wise, it's completely useless because uh, the only people who ever go to your gigs are people who have to buy into what you're doing, which is great. And, and it's um, everybody turns up, you think, wow, we've had to win that person to get them in a room. But, um, and you know, if you're a genre band, you'll sell the room out to everybody into that genre. And we're not that, you know, we're just, we're just this kind of weird outside thing. You know, even Spotify didn't know where to put us. You know, although when they try to put you into little genres, it's always the wrong one because we're not in a genre. <laughs> yes, it, it wasn't deliberate. It just ended up like that because uh, we, we made the way we thought you made music was it was unfettered and it, it, it's not influenced by anybody. You just got a room and made the music. You didn't think if I do a bit like this, I might sound a bit like that. I might be able to get a little bit of the action over there. Stupidly, we thought you just made the sound that was in your head and resonated with you as a person. <laughs> yeah, and it's the worst advice I'd give anybody. Because <laughs> when you listen to the C eighty six and there's those bands like Stump, Bogshed, Big Flame, did you think, jeezy, queasy, we should we should definitely be part of that world? Well, yeah, I mean, Bogshed had sent me their first demo with twenty two tracks on it, and I went to their first gig in uh, in Manchester when was only two of us there, and I put their record out on. on and it's an amazing record. And I think they're a great band. This is not a critique of any of the bands. I love these bands. But um, but, but it's um, but it, it was weird when like you see Stump getting a major record deal and then we were on the outside of that. We didn't get any of the stuff that we set up. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a bitter thing. You're just like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of the way it always is, isn't it? You just get used to it, don't you? You get used to being stuck on the outside of everything, sort of looking in. But I suppose the final victory was that uh, when we made these two recent records, everybody gave amazing reviews and we finally got the pat on the back sort of thing, yeah. Because <laughs> I know a couple of months ago there was a, a, a book that came out called The Hit Factories, A Journey Through the Industrial Cities of British Pop by Cole Whiteney. And, um, I mean, he in the first two cities he talks about is Liverpool and then Manchester. And you've been from Blackpool, you're right there as well. So what, I mean, what was it sort of, I suppose, you know, because Cherry Red and you on the label now, they brought out that seven CD box set of Manchester and then another one, which is five CDs for Liverpool. I mean, did all that sort of filter over towards 
um, Ernie and the uh, <laughs> the premium, premium bond and towards the the bright lights of Blackpool because you must be very aware of that and the, all those studios that were in that area as well. I know there was a guy called Paul Hanley did that book Leave the Capital about the sort of the history of Manchester music you know in 13 recordings I mean you must have been kind of like thinking my god because I'm from we're from Norwich there weren't a huge amount of music that was kind of coming but from looking up north you're thinking my god you've got it all there yeah well, yeah we knew but we, we knew what was going on and even the pre-internet days you would know you would know it was like a little uh chain of of communicators you know people from Manchester will come to Blackpool you know was it uh, Section 25 with the other local post-punk bands. His first album, it doesn't, I don't want to sound like I'm about myself all the time, but the first album, Section 25, to me, is equal to Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures and inventing their sound and style. They had that sound before Joy Division, but they were in Blackpool, so nobody was looking. You know, Manchester was cool. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was you know, the post-industrial dereliction of Manchester. What a cool place, you know. Uh, Liverpool was cool because it still had the legacy of the Beatles and it had this kind of post-punk scene there and Eric's and all that. But Blackpool was just candy floss and, and so people didn't think anything cool could come out of Blackpool. And we were hampered by that as well and Section 25 were. I mean, if Ian Curtis had come from Blackpool, he wouldn't have seen his hip, which is ridiculous. It's a stupid idea, isn't it? I mean, he actually came from Macclesfield, but they blurred the lines a bit to make him look like he came from Manchester, didn't they? I mean, Macclesfield's not a suburb of Manchester. It's about 25 minutes away on the train. You know, it's... It's, a, it's far enough away to have a slightly different culture and accent. So, so yeah, so, it was a, so Blackpool, we, we were definitely, we weren't behind the beach. We were on the beach. You know, we weren't waiting to see what Manchester did to get our cues. You know, we, we liked the music scene there, but we didn't feel intimidated by it. And the same with Liverpool as well, you know. It's, but the trouble was, but we were just stuck in the wrong place, so we couldn't get much attention. You know, you could play in Blackpool, but the music press weren't going to come and write about you. Um, and people thought you were some kind of bumpkin because bumpkin, you came from this weird little holiday town, you know. And, but years later, I'm actually really pleased it came from Blackpool because I had my own narrative. You know, if you're from Manchester, there's a certain story, you know, Manchester's got this, this and this, therefore you must be that. But if you originally came from Blackpool, people don't quite know where to place you, which is a good thing as well, I suppose. Yes. yes. But, but Ian, Kurt, Ian Curtis would come over to Section 25's house every Sunday. I mean, he was 500 yards up the road from us every week, you know, and he loved Section 25. He co-produced the first album, you know, and all this stuff, he's looking after them and things, yeah. Well, it, and it was it was it, what, the studio in Rochdale, was it Car the Car Cargo, which was the famous... Cargo 316, we recorded there, everyone recorded there, it's a brilliant studio, yeah. And what made it so special, because I often hear people mention this kind of uh, studio. Stunning, stunning live room, yeah. It, it, was, it had a certain, it wasn't even built on purpose, it wasn't like Albini's studio, which has got amazing... Uh, He's built that room with the right breeze blocks to get the right sound because he studied it. This was just, uh, I think it'd been the printers and it's where they used to keep all the artwork or whatever they printed in a room. And when he got to the studio, they made that the live room. And when the drum sound there was 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 ace, really great. To this day, you listen to it and think, wow, that sounds good, you know. But, um, but, it's got, but they reopened the studio but for some reason. They swapped it around. So they put the control room in the studio and the studio room is, is now the control room. So it's, it's all back to front. So it's... Uh, so, so they kind of lost the thing that made them really great. But I could always tell a record made there because I can hear the, little, the, the certain sound of the drums and things. Yeah. Yes. And, it, it, and also there weren't that many other studios. You know, there just wasn't anywhere else to go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could go down to... You'd have to go to London for most studios. So once a few people have been there, everything rolled. And I think that's, for me, that's one of the main 
uh, post-punk studios in, in the UK because you look at the records that came out there, Gang of Four, Dead or Alive, Joy Division, ACR, I mean, God, everybody went there. It's amazing. Yeah. And obviously, as, as, as that sort of magical decade, the, the 80s, trundled on, you sort of went from quite a few, you did, I think, five albums on a lot of different record labels. And then as the decade came to an end, did you, was there a moment that you all sat down and said, this is, we can't continue, this is the end? It, well, it didn't really stop. It just sort of slowed down till it, till it just got to a point where nothing happened for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't... So the, there, there wasn't. Was no there, there, there was no particular no. moment that you, you just all said we've had enough. Because I mean, there was, I, don't, I can't remember who they were now. I think it was Jim Jones said they'd all got a tour lined up, and most of the band said actually the World Cup's on. We're, we're not that bothered. We'd, they'd also done a big American tour, and I think that finished them off for various reasons. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty unrelenting. You know, if you tour a lot, it's it's very tiring. Yes, and, um, especially if you're not um, if if you're a bigger band, the luxury levels a little higher. But them days, it wasn't even splitter vans; it was transit vans. A lot of those. And you're overnight in it, so you play Norwich, you go down and transit down sat on amps, do the gig, and go home, get home at seven in the morning, sat on amps, and hope the driver, when he brakes, didn't break all of a sudden because you just go flying off the amps. I mean, completely dangerous. Uh, but that's how it was done then, you know, because you couldn't afford to stay, you know. It was, it's, it's not like having got put in hotels. It's not a lux- these weren't luxury tours. These are, there was no money in that underground scene. It was 50, 100 quid gigs everywhere. Of course, as soon as it the American, the American bands turned up. Everything to find money for them, but the, the British bands always treated us just, you know, oh yeah, well you're from here, aren't you? Don't have to pay you. Yes. <laughs> but it's interesting because because a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, they've got this five year narrative. You know, they make a sound after twelve to eighteen months. You know, if they get a John Peel play, that's great, and then a possible John Peel session, which is all good. Then that first album, everything's going well. Second album, a bit tricky. And if anybody ever does America, that kind of does literally finish them off. So it's kind of, I mean, it's such a cliche but five years seems to be like the time and I think part of it is like dealing with the business dealing with the publishing and also the dynamic with it within each other and they're just thinking I've just had enough I just I'm I'm, I'm hollow spiritually I've had it so so did you I just wondered how your your sort of journey in the 80s felt it was probably the same thing really I mean we we would do eight week tours around Europe of that same thing going around little van sleeping on floors, sipping the van sometimes and um then, then you know doing the gigs. Gigs are ace, you know, it's great playing the gigs. It was great going to Poland before the eye curtain came down, you know, finding there's a music scene there. In fact I, I met the promoter from that gig uh, last year and I hadn't seen him for uh, thirty odd years. It was amazing to see him again. He's just a kid last time and now he's like this kind of late middle aged old dude, you know, I think, Wow God <laughs> <laughs> So um so we went down all those countries, and it's great adventures and that. You get home and you're like a zombie. I mean, you you love it all. I mean, you, you know, you always every night you, you're overnight and drives because the, the schedules, getting arrested by the police for in Italy for most stupid things by machine gun, uh, stuck in our faces and that. So it's it's all all mad stuff goes on, which is great. It's funny, but it's it's uh, it's tiring, you know. So, but but now it's better, you know. It's, I think people now in venues think. You know, maybe you have to feed the bands. They might play better. <laughs> well, <laughs> I did pay them slightly more so they get a split of and sit in a chair. Yes. It's not legal to go around the transit bands. So the level of touring and the professionalism of the venues is a lot higher now than it was in that period. Yes. I also think the disappointment, I think people go into music, think it's going to be one thing, but it actually turns into another. You know, so it's not... I mean, I don't think anybody goes into it thinking they're going to be a superstar or earn loads of money. No, nobody thinks that. That's a cliche, that. But people think it's um, 
it's not quite as unrelenting as it's going to be, you know, because people always say, oh, it's not like a proper job and that. And, and yeah, I mean, and I do value the work that a nurse sort of fire, fire, you know, fire brigade does and that. And that those people do amazing jobs and don't get paid enough, which is an indictment of our society. But it doesn't mean that being in a band is, is easy. I mean, we get the buzz of being able to show off on stage every night, which is ace. But in between, you've got like 18 hours of like trying to feel human again. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember sort of hearing Lemmy say, you know, you're not always feeling up for it, but, you know, that is your job and you just have to sort of go and do it, even though it's sometimes you just, yes, not not sort of feeling feeling the love oh, of it. I'm sure I'm sure Lemmy had ways of getting himself into the mood. I'm sure he did. He sure he did. <laughs> but look, with this new album, which has kind of got a lot of kind of, um, well, kind of interesting because it, you, you've become sort of much more connected with, with nature, haven't you, on this one? And and sort of you've worked with, well, actually two of the people I've interviewed, Shirley Collins and also Kurt Brannan. Have you interviewed Shirley? Oh, yes. She's ace, isn't she? Yeah. Well, she well she's ace because because you never know you know she's old and you know she said yes I'll do an interview with you and I thought God that's extraordinary and then she was on the phone for absolutely ages and she she just had these <laughs> incredible stories that were just like okay. oh, amazing stories. She told me. Have you, you know, seen the film? The film's ace. Oh, God, no, I don't think I have. I, oh, you want it... to see the film? Yeah, it's really good. That's how I met her, because my friends made the film. And this is and with went... Stuart, um, the comedian. Oh, God. Um, oh, Stuart Lee. Stuart yeah. Lee was part of that, wasn't yeah. he, as well? So, been, you know, you, you've definitely sort of branched out and, and sort of taken the almost elements, I wouldn't say completely, but there were, there were elements that were quite proggy in the album. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of those divisions that people built, you know... Um, Prog was a reaction to Prague. Prague was a reaction to this and that. That's all. It's kind of just. It was all uh, journalist talk. It's way selling papers in a way. It wasn't. It was never um, the reality of it. You know, it's people used to like both. You know, they, they might hide the Prague records behind the punk records, but they didn't hide all of them. You know, and also, what what exactly is Prague? You know, uh, Hawkwind, amazing bands. Are they Prague? I mean, when you listen to the Space Ritual album, live album, Lemmy's playing bass on it. It sounds like a punk record. There's so many uh, crossovers, weren't there? Yes. Well, uh, to be honest, I'm at that. I'm sort of okay. I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. My older brother, who I kind of, I suppose, worshipped, was seven years older, and so he had all those prog albums, which I didn't know what they what that meant. But I just played them because I was about ten, eleven. And I just thought they were fascinating. So I actually digested the entire work of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, you know, Barclay James Harvest, you know, because it was great. You know, it was better than what I was watching on top of the, um, yeah, top of the pops, I suppose, um, with some weird singles and all that kind of Telly Savalas and you know I don't know had yeah. an Ernie the fastest milkman so I was think I was you know so actually you know I always had this kind of love of prog you know so actually when I heard your album there was like elements that I thought hmm this is almost John Anderson territory at times not completely but you know there were there was kind of quite a crossover I suppose and then I saw who you've worked with and it was like okay this is this is a this is a much more diverse work, piece of work than you know just getting in the studio with four chaps and bashing it out yeah it's, um, I mean a lot of punk could be uh, as complex as well you know it wasn't yes the Ramones are very simple I mean it's a brilliant concept actually but the Stranglers again I mean who I know arguably weren't punk but kind of were everyone bought the records with punks we're, we're playing we're playing around with prog and also pop music as well because you could write really great pop songs there's a complexity to, to the music the fall or proggy you know it's it's maybe in the end, it's just it's just such a waste of time putting anything to boxes. I mean, anybody under thirty won't do that now. They just like music. It's only people of our generation will say, "Oh, you can't like that because it's because you like that." You know, like this is 
it's it's just a false. It's like it's like Donald Trump's wall, isn't it? It's just you don't need it. It's a pointless exercise. So it's um, so splitting music up and subdividing it is so irrational. It's insane. And the only way you can uh, go with music is if you like it instinctively. You think that's good. I don't care if it's a the word guilty pleasure is ridiculous. You know, it's it's what resonates with you. And and in a sense, in the album, there's there's a, there's a progginess to it because some of the songs are quite long. But on the other hand, they're not that complex. You know, it can be the bass line could be playing one note for about five minutes. So it's it's probably close to kraut rock, which in a, in, a, in a way it was just German prog, but somehow they seemed a bit more exotic, so cooler. So you're allowed to like them, but you're not allowed to like the British bands as much, I for some reason. That, that really weird cultural inferiority complex we always have here. So, yes. it, um, so, so yeah, so why not, you know, take elements of different things? I mean, prog, prog gave the possibility of songs being over three minutes, but it doesn't mean I don't like three-minute songs. We have three-minute songs on the album, but we also have songs at six or seven minutes. But you just have to, you have to let the song dictate you know if it feels right playing for six minutes then it's right yes. and it's not and it, whether whether someone thinks that's prog or you've just forgotten to get to the end doesn't really matter does it <laughs> yes so how did your collaboration or, or um work with shirley collins come together i just wondered what would the what was the process did you sort of think actually i've got a song that she's going to be on or did you did you sort of collaborate together you know i just what was what was the kind of narrative of that um, well, I went to see the film. I was doing some stuff for Lush, who paid for the film, you know, these soap people. Yes. And I went to see the first night of the film, and I, and I, and I met her up there, and I was chatting to her, and we got on really well. And then I, I saw, in fact, the first person I saw was uh, Bobby Marshall, who used to manage, still manages Agent Sherwood. And I was going, oh, buddy, oh, Bobby, what are you doing here? Do you, are you fan of Shirley Collins? Go, you go, no, it's me mother. <laughs> so that, I was like, oh, God, that's weird. That's a interesting start to the evening. So um, <laughs> so when she came in, he said, oh, it's Shirley, you know, mum, this is a genre, blah, blah, blah. So I met her like that uh, via her son, who I've known for years. And and then uh, just, and she did easy to get on with, sort of chatting to her and kept in touch with her. And I just said, do you want to do something? We got this album and the key theme is beauty, violence and nature. Do you want to do something on that? Uh, and she just ran me up about ten minutes later. We just recorded by holding a mic up to the phone, and she had the whole piece worked out. So, yeah, it was it was easy to do. And she did the perfect piece as well. And it was great to hear a voice on it. Yeah, and it's great to have uh, an eighty-four-year-old woman on, on the on the record. You know, because I mean, one thing we 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 def- I mean, yes, we are four blokes in a band, but we don't want to be just four blokes in a band. We are a choir as well, and we are curveball guests. You know. They're not just um, special guests. In a way, Shirley's doing her part. I know she doesn't sing it, but in her part's like a, as a vocal. You know, I would say she's a co-vocalist on the track or whatever. You know, it's, we're not playing by the rules, really. You know, it's, yeah. You know, if, if people want to take that track as Shirley's track, that's cool with me. You know. Yeah. Well, it, it's quite amazing. And what about the the um, the magical, mystical properties of flowers, which is very um, Donovan esque as a title. Which, <laughs> don't worry, I love Donovan. You know, don't, oh, I love Donovan. <laughs> In the Dylan like, film, he got treated awfully by Dylan, didn't he? You know, um, don't look back when he's yes. like about seventeen and goes backstage, and Dylan's really rude to him. Yes, you know, kept mispronouncing his name on purpose. They went, "Well, yeah, I know, I know you're talented, Bob. But Donovan's pretty talented as well, you know. It's, I mean, he was a precursor to Sid Barrett, um, uh, and and uh, and Bowen, wasn't he? You know, the, the sort of this sort of pixie pop or whatever. <laughs> yes, this is right. So, how did the the the, the track with Kurt um, Brandon Brandon? Well, Kirk from... was in the next door studio recording. We know him anyway. We've toured him a few times, 
and um, he just came in to have a cup of tea and say, how, how, how are you? What's going on? I said, oh, I didn't know you next door, Kirk. I knew he was in there sometimes. I said, why, why are you here? <laughs> do, you, do you want to stick a vocal on the end of this track? Uh, and he did, and he's brilliant, and he did it in two takes because he's just one of the greatest singers ever, and he's like, he's not, his voice is operatic. It's like an operatic version of the uh, claustrophobic intensity of John Johnny Rotten. He's in his pomp, in it, and it's it's just incredible to yes. all that. And he, sh- he should be better appreciated as well, you know. Absolutely. And do you sort of because um, obviously, what's kind of boggling because because he's got quite a tour coming up, and you've got a tour. Do you do you sometimes sort of you know obviously you do bump into each you know to, to some of these past people friends and, and people you might not have spoke to and sort of give each other that kind of god we're still rocking aren't we we're doing it we all know each other you know that's the thing it's uh, any promoter who wants to rip a band off they, they don't seem to realize this that uh, we're all about one text away from each other so when they tell you they paid one band one amount and another, anything like that doesn't sound right so you text each other, you go, okay, okay, that's what we're doing, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and you, you meet each other all over the place. You meet each other motorway services, uh, festivals, uh, the American embassy when you're desperately trying to get your overcharged visa. You know, it's it's band, bands are always bumping each other on the road and you're always in touch with each other, you know, like texting or emailing or Facebooking. You know, we, we have a community. We're all friends, you know. Yes, and also, and obviously, you're now on the very cool uh, Cherry Red Records. Has that been quite a relief to get that side of your, you know, musical, I was going to say, career sorted? Because cause that's often one thing that trips people up. But but obviously, you you know, they've got this new album on on the label, and you've you've worked with them in the past. Uh, yeah, it's, it's because it's a it's a big professional setup. It's not a major, but then get your record in the shops, which really helps. You know, it's. I mean, DIY is fine, you know, but it's it's really hard to run your own operation, especially when you go out on the road and things. God, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Yes. So, it's, uh, so it does help, yeah, of course. It makes a big and, difference. And just lastly, because you've done, you know, you do quite a lot of things. So what do you, you know, and you mentioned it, because I've seen, watched some, watched some of your lush um, kind of interviews. Was that something that just kind of fell on your lap, in, into your lap? I've, I've been interviewed people for years, obviously with magazines, et cetera. And they just wanted to film them and they had a budget to go out and make really high quality filmed interviews and they've done really well and it's been that it's been good we're going to do another season soon and that's so that's been really cool so it's i'm up for anything i think the thing about punk it was it was an empowerment and it made made you not scared of doing stuff so people say do you want to do this um the normal reaction would be well i'm not sure if i could do that but because of punk you go yeah i'm, I'm not scared of that i will try that so it's and i see there's in a way, it's been different aspects of the same thing, you know. So, like, if you're into music, if, if, you're, if, you, if you play music and you love music, you should be able to write about music as well, you know. Yes. Well, you have that inside sort of, like, chat, don't you? You have that inside knowledge. Well, it does help, and musicians do trust other musicians, don't they? I mean, it's not like we're all going to sit there and talk about guitar amps, but, um, but, we, but we know, they know that you know the struggle, that they can trust you because they, they know that you know about the all-night drives back and stuff. You've done it, you know. So there is a there's definitely um, a yes. level of communication and lack of suspicion, which is important. You have been through yeah. the trenches, haven't you? And just also, last <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of, and obviously you also do the online, you know, blog louder than wall. So again, you you you've always managed to sort of be incredibly focused and busy, and and always producing. So that is that just another thing that you started and just saw how you know was going to see how it went, and then thought. Sod it. It's well, just, yeah, it's nearly been 10 years. 
I got interested in the dynamics of how sound got made, you know, and, and I wanted to make the records um, properly, you know, after not knowing, because you, when you're young, you just go in the studio and you hope for the best. So, so I just got, then I started to learn how to do it as I went along, and that made that that was a big difference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So then, then I've done the last two albums because of all the knowledge you've gained over the years, and and so that that's I think I'm always learning stuff. You never know everything. You just you just learn. Everybody you meet, you learn things off, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, no, nobody's nobody's actually an expert, are they? Everybody's just got their idea of how things work. I think you can be nudged in the right direction. And just lastly, I mean, what, you know, because you've been obviously sort of only 40 years in, in this incredibly interesting life, I mean, of music, what what would you sort of, what would your key points be? Well, I mean, I often say, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? But that's often a bit sort of tricky to say, well, you're 18 now or then, you know, just just something that you think, God, that that is wisdom. I've learned that through years and decades, and that would have been a good thing to have just had when I began. You, you, well, one thing, you know, we never thought we'd get past 25, you know, we, we thought we're going, to, we're going to just get burned out. 25 is incredibly ancient, and you're living life at such a hell scale speed that you wouldn't get past that. You know, then you realise there is an old bit. Because in punk, and in that time, even the older people at like the Stones are in their late 30s, and they seemed... People used to laugh at the Stones being in their late 30s, and they, you know, oh, I fancy them still playing music. And then you learn that Music is a lifetime thing. You could do all your life, or you don't have to. You know, it's it's open either way, isn't it? So, but it's um, so, so, so you don't have to rush everything in really quick. And, and I think that, and, and I think there's actually different kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom of an 18 year old, which you don't have when you're older. You, you might know more stuff when you're older, but um, an, an 18 year old has an incredible confidence, you know, and uh, sometimes and, and also. Uh, no fear of death, you know. It's 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 an it's a, it's an insanity, but it's a great way great way to have your mind. You know, you just you, you do things when you get older. You think, well, I go, oh Jesus, you know, if I don't have to do that now, that's the end's coming pretty soon. I could mess everything up. That's what, you know, when I try try not to think that, I think you should always be slightly health scale to what you do. Yes. Um, so so when but when you're eighteen, everything's completely compulsive and instinctive, isn't it? and I think. Being compulsive and being instinctive are very important in music. I mean, I've totally useless if you're meant to be running a country, but uh, when you but, but when you're playing rock and roll or music or whatever, or being creative or any kind of art, the thing that feels right is the thing that's right. Yes, I, I remember sort of Iggy Pop sort of saying something about sort of he'll never be able to hit write those classic songs because he won't be. Can't quite remember what the combination was. Kind of messed up and full of kind of energy or, or something. And it was a fine line between, you know, I suppose it's kind of a simplistic way of saying it. But, you know, it was like to get that kind of classic line, that classic riff, sometimes you have to be in an altered state, I suppose. It's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a tricky well, one. Or the wild confidence of youth, you know. I mean, there's, and there's a different kind of... Uh, that's saying it's like a different kind of wisdom at that yes. time, isn't it? Yeah. But, but in a surreal way, you must feel a little bit strange that you're going to have a perfume... Named after you, didn't is Lush? Uh, oh, is, is Lush yeah, bringing yeah, we, a, a we, cosmetic? We made it. We just need to tweak it a bit. But we made it's named after one of the songs on the album. It's called a strange perfume. A strange. But so, so the what's the essence of this perfume going to be? By the way, uh, it smells like an autumnal forest. Um, but we got a little couple of little twists in it. We just need to get the balance right. So it does smell very natural. Right. Uh, is it has it got a touch of patchouli in? That's the main thing. No, but that way that's it. There's one 
added ingredient we need to put in that's right. We haven't found it yet. So I keep we keep emailing backwards and forwards. I've got a bottle of it here. Yeah, it's quite amazing. It does it, it actually does exist. <laughs> so when we get it right, it'll, it'll come out and they'll give it they'll be in all their shops and yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm really pleased. I mean, you know, you can you've you've joined that new elite. <laughs> yeah, it's not main. Normally, people bands have got their own perfume. Yeah. No, this is great. <laughs> look, John. Well, look. Thank you ever so much. And I have to say, I, you know, I, I personally think your, your material's got better with years, actually, because I just, for various reasons. But I think you know, one of them is the songwriting, but also the sound is is so much, you know, more alive. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think I think we we worked out what we're trying to do when we were younger because we couldn't do it then. But now we sussed it out. You know how to how to do this stuff. Yes, yeah. and now, and you're also going to be touring and in Norwich on the, I just looked, the 26th of October. Because actually one thing that I noticed, and this was talking to a member of the Hard-Ons, and you kind of have an idea, and he said he's really into fitness. And he said he spent a few years being a bit debauched and went, got, got bored and went, I'm just a really keep fit nut and I really love it. And once you've touched that, and I suppose touring, you just realise you do have to hit the gym or some sort of exercise regime. Yeah, there's, there's definitely different... If you're doing very physical music when you're older, it's, you, got, you definitely have a different mentality to it. You know, you've got to be, it's got to be a level of fitness to be able to, to actually play the music in a very physical way. You know, it's, it's nothing looks weirder than a bunch of old dudes trying to play uh, music of high energy, but standing there looking knackered, <laughs> starting yes. to seep into the music. You only need one of you to be that level. Uh, and also, I think it keeps the intensity level up. And I think the intensity is very important. You know, our music is intense, and it. You can't play that sitting in a rocking chair. You've got to be physically, mentally, and spiritually intense to make the music work. It's the key to the music. So, and it's interesting. A lot of people my age, like the guy from Hard Ons, whatever. That's what. That's where you end up, you know, because you you couldn't you can only do that rock and roll lifestyle for a certain amount of time, and you don't get a buzz out of it anymore. And maybe the buzz comes from having your body as finely tuned as you could possibly get it, you know. Yes. And and also, your autumn, I just realised you've got two months without a break nearly, haven't you? <laughs> uh, of, of touring? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's ways you just create mini breaks in a sense, you know. You you, you can sleep in the van or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's not like it's full on. You just you create his own routine in a way. So I usually get up about eight o'clock in the morning. I go for a run around the town that I'm in, do all my press ups, have my breakfast, get in the van, wait for everyone else to get up and go. Yes. But from <laughs> Doze from... off in the van, wait to go to the gig, stretch out a bit, you know, set the gig up and play. It's 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 the only routine life I ever have is when I'm on tour. The rest of my life's got no routine in it at all. Okay. Yes, because I was gonna say when you get on the bus or the minibus when on the 10th of October you're basically going to not stop until Christmas Day aren't you? <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's a treat though isn't it I mean that's, that's what you buy into this for isn't it yeah and when you play every night the band gets really hot as well because it just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling you know you get tighter and tighter and more and more instinctive it's you know I mean the first day to be it's good but in the end you've really got it really got it nailed down you know Yes. Well, I always remember sort of when, I don't know, was it the 
Black Sabbath said their first album, they just kind of recorded it almost in a couple of days because they'd been playing it live for so long. It wasn't really going to be a problem sort of just whacking it out. And, you know, it was a classic album. So, you know, I think you're right. And also being obsessed with watching those documentaries. I remember watching one recently on Twisted Sister, who I didn't like, but they just played for years before they got that first record deal. The same, you know, the Stones, the Beatles, everybody put that kind of years of work in. And so when they went to, you know, record and start being part of the music industry they'd got you know they'd got a lot of stuff under the belt really so um yes it's a good one yeah i mean that, that those days it was easy because more gigs weren't there so young bands could get super tight couldn't they and so it's all it <clears throat> but i love machines aren't they yes it's, it's a lot harder now if it you feel sorry for bands you know even from our generation onwards there's a lot less gigs to play because the, the culture changed didn't it well, I think, you know, also, you know, just, you know, with the C86 world, <clears throat> one thing I realised that John Peel and, and the NME, I suppose, and Science Man, they were the gatekeepers. So if they got to play there, then somebody, a promoter, which and when I say promoter, I mean, it's not a big thing. On a Monday night, could book you to the Norwich Arts Centre or go up to Glasgow or Leeds or Bristol, you know, so you could kind of play into a different audience. And I realised how important that is for a, a new band. Otherwise, you're just playing in front of your home supporters which are going to be you know your friends family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see but to suddenly yeah. get get the phone call and say do you want to play tuesday night in norwich or whatever you know in front of a completely different audience must you know it does give bands that extra kind of it raises it's raise your game really doesn't and that's the main thing yeah i, I, I mean you can rehearse forever but playing in front of an audience will definitely tighten a band up yes. much better you know and also i think it's just a human thing you kind of and if you're just trying to make music on your own, pure your own terms, you kind of ebb and flow and react with the audience and it kind of infuses into your music without you even knowing. So the stuff that goes down better, you probably lean slightly more in that direction. No matter how antagonistic you actually think you are, you can't help it. You kind of like, you kind of go that way, you know. So it's um, that. So the one people ask people about what their influences are, they can be quite diverse, really. Yeah. Yes, this is true. Anyway, look, John, this is great. Um, yeah, thanks ever so much. And I'll tell... Um, God, I can't remember her name there. Um, when I put this oh, out... Shauna. Yes, yeah. this is it. Um, and Which is great. And um, yes, which will be in a couple of weeks' time. But thanks, and I hope it really goes well, because it's um, fantastic, and, and it's great that you've got such an amazingly busy autumn all lined up. Yes, yeah, ace. <laughs> ace. Anyway. We're, we're, we're also playing Norwich coming up in October. Yes, this is good. 26th of June. Um, October, June. Oh, yeah, so, so just give uh, messages and... Uh, Oh, yes. Uh, I'll put you on the guest list and come down if you're around. Yeah. That would be brilliant. We'll go for a run. Yeah, it'd be good to meet, meet you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll run, run to Ipswich. Yeah. <laughs> run around the city a few times. Anyway, look, that's um, all good stuff. Anyway, I will. And um, have a great time and, uh, yeah, and a great autumn. But thanks again and uh, much appreciated. Okay, thank you. Take all care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye.